When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. As the NFL season wraps up, you're going to want to check out the Dan Patrick Show for everything coming up. Dan and the Danettes provide the most up-to-date sports coverage every day of the week. Plus, Dan's got the biggest guests, the best commentary, and everything in between with a bit of fun on the side. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, and many other podcast apps so you can get new episodes every day. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. The trade deadline just passed, and it was more eventful than I anticipated. Really happy to have on Dan Feldman, one of my compatriots on the mock deadline, mock off season, also talented on the CBA and does great work for NBC's Pro Basketball Talk to break down not only the deadline day, but also some of the big moves leading up to it, including the big four-teamer that sent Robert Covington to the Houston Rockets and Clint Capella to the Atlanta Hawks, among many others. This episode is brought to you by BetOnline and use that podcast one promo code for a 50% sign-up bonus. Episode runs about an hour 10. Lots of good stuff in here. Uh, some interesting disagreements as well. And Dan and I hadn't talked about the deadline since it really happened other than some chatter, you know, at the exact moment as we're both doing a ton of different writing and talking and all that kind of stuff. So hope you really enjoy it. I had a lot of fun recording it. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I, I guess I'm honored to be your first look back really at this deadline, at least in audio form. Uh, it's I've already rehashed it at least a couple times with Nate, not only on Dunked On, but also on the live show. I'll give you free reign for most of it, but I feel like the place we have to start was with a conception that you kind of came up with out of whole cloth. <laughs> and while the deal that happened wasn't exactly the same, the four-teamer involving Robert Covington and Clicapella was reasonably close. And as the other person negotiating with you in the mock deadline, I was pretty shocked at that, that the concept was pretty similar. Yeah, so I, I guess just to explain a little bit of the starting point, uh, which is really the part that became true, was I had the Rockets and I said, okay, I, I think the Rockets are going to want to get out of the luxury decks. They're going to want to upgrade on the wing and uh, they're comfortable being smaller. And so I, I looked at Robert Covington as a perfect fit. I think he fits their system so well. He's on a relatively cheap contract and uh, he's under contract for a couple more years. So if the Rockets are going to put in an asset, uh, he makes sense as the type of guy to get for both his, what he'll bring on the court and what his contract status is. And then you look, if the Rockets are trading for him, it's basically got to be Clint Capella. 
And the Timberwolves, they already have Carl Anthony Towns. They'll have no inter- interest in Clint Capella. So then the question becomes in becomes what other team do you rope in? And that's where it diverged. For me, it was kind of easy because I had the Celtics in the mock deadline. The Celtics could use an upgrade at center. I say, yeah, it's easy enough. I can negotiate with myself, think about what the Celtics would want, and then go from there. Uh, but the starting point of the Rockets wanting Robert Covington and Minnesota not being able to use Clint Capella, I think, uh, held true. Right, and part of the experience of the mock deadline is really trying to get into the head of that general manager and what do they want most. I think that's been one of the clarifying parts of that process for me and why I feel a lot of years like I know my team's quote-unquote better. I mean, Nate and I and you, all of us, for our, through our work, think about all 30 teams, but we go so much more in-depth on that group of seven or eight. And it, it did it did work out really well to kind of get that that mind frame. But yeah, Houston had very specific constraints and objectives. And Something that I, I was just writing about the Marcus Morris trade a few minutes ago was a reminder is just how few players there were that are capable wing defenders who can space the floor and are available. Like, there, first of all, there aren't that many in the first place. But second of all, there aren't that many that are available in, in any way, shape, or form. And so that led to pretty high returns for Covington, Morris, and you could theoretically say Andre Iguodala, though I disagree with the return that Mem- that Memphis chose <laughs> to receive. But the concept there holds is that there aren't that many of those guys, and instead of you know a, a, a sharp juxtaposition to some of the other positions that are out there, the teams that held those players' rights got got their return. Well, let's narrow it a little more. Uh, not just a wing who's three and D like that, but. If you're going to win a championship, you got to think you're going through LeBron James and Kawhi Leonard at some point. Like maybe you get the exact lucky break and it doesn't happen, but you've got to be prepared for it if you're serious about winning a title. And uh, Robert Covington is not the on-ball defender like that that you can really count on. I'm not saying he's going to uh, completely fail in that matchup, but you're not looking him for that. Uh, Andre Guadala is not the three-point shooter you want. So to meet the more specific prayers is really just Marcus Morris. Uh, that's why in the mock trade deadline, I was looking to try and get like somebody like OG Ananobi, like really try and overpay, offer multiple first round picks because there just aren't that many guys who can defend LeBron, Kawhi, and hit three pointers. Uh, and that's why some people were surprised uh, with what the the Clippers gave up for Marcus Morris. I really wasn't, especially when the Clippers the, they had those assets. And and this is something I got into a little bit with, with Seth Partnow when we were breaking this down, is uh, the idea that center, you could argue for the Clippers, was a, a stronger conceptual need just because they have wing defenders. But the problem is also who is available for the price that you're willing to offer, who is also a part of your playoff rotation. And so I had been fixated on the idea of Miles Turner for the Clippers. He's somebody who could space the floor because Kawhi needs a little bit of real estate to operate. He can get to a spot, but if he has to go through extra guys, it can be a challenge. I think that was something that took him a little while to adjust to against both the Sixers and the Bucks in those series. And so four spacing fives was an interesting idea. There just weren't that many available that are also like good enough players. And so, yeah, Marcus Morris fits he, – he fits the description. Not a perfect player on or off the court. I mean, he just had that recent controversy as well, but along with previous ones, of course. But he, he, fits, he fits that description, and there aren't many people that do. And I, I like what you said about, you know, the, the LeBron and Kawhi part of this. And it's true whether you're in the West or the East. You know, we have a pretty good idea, I think, at this point of who you might have to go through. And it might not be – this specific team, but probably, unless you are one of those, the top three of the Lakers, Clippers, and Bucks, you're probably going to have to go through at least one and probably two. So 
that's a lot to ask. And there are specific players that work better in those series and specific players that do not. And so what hap- what, what, this idea that I was struck by when thinking about the, the Morris trade was, I don't think in the abstract... Marcus Morris is that much better of a basketball player than Mo Harkless. If we're going back to the idea of like video game ra- ratings, I don't think that Morris is like 10 points better than Mo Harkless. But in this specific construction against these specific opponents, he absolutely is. Let's talk about Mo Harkless just for one second. He last year was starting on a team that went to the Western Conference Finals. And just because of his contract status, he's been flung all around the league. And now he's on a real bad team in the Knicks. Like that just kind of stinks. It does, and it's also a reminder of, for me, why it's good to kind of have your ducks in a row. I, for me, the use of assets here from the Knicks' perspective, or it could just be that nobody else offered anything for Harkless, is he could help somebody. And sure, I'm, I'm, there are teams that could potentially benefit from Harkless getting bought out, if that's what happens. I, I could imagine him leaving some money on the table and going to a playoff team, if, if that's what he wants. Maybe he wants a, a quieter rest of the season. But <laughs> I'm guessing Harkless wants some momentum going into free agency. That That's an underrated part of why players do buyouts is not, oh, they want to play in the playoffs. It's also because they're about to be free agents again. And so they're probably looking to get more buzz, looking to get more eyeballs on them. And that's also part of why Ellington and Wes Matthews last year chose to go to less champion, weaker championship contenders that had more playing time to offer. And, and, and that ended up working out, you know, Matt Matthews chose something different in free agency, but I do think those guys got playing time. And so if that's what they wanted, then it worked out. And that is a complicated piece of advising for agents in that respect because there are arguments both ways and I think some of it depends on on what the player wants and and also can they predict accurately who's going to need them among the best teams well so that leads to something else uh, about the new equilibrium post cap spike Uh, we're settling back into how things used to be where not every team is going to have cap space every summer and uh, next summer it's going to be fully on the other end of the spectrum, especially after this trade deadline. So many teams that projected to have cap space used a lot of them, a lot of it. And so for somebody like Mo Harkless, and I'd include very much Tristan Thompson in the, in this, the calculation is a little different. It's partially about, well, where are my bird rights? If you take a buyout, your full bird rights are gone. Uh, I don't know if the Knicks have any interest in re-signing Mo Harkless. It does sound like the Cavaliers at one point at least had some interest in re-signing Tristan Thompson. I don't know how much it's going to be. But I'm curious how guys who in previous years might have been more open to a buyout are valuing keeping their bird rights intact somewhere, leaving that door open for re-signing. That's a really good point. And I think because of how many there were some, especially more casuals, I think are overstating the impact of sign-in trades because receiving a player by sign-in trade is what subjects the team to the hard cap. And we'll see how how many teams that really limits, but also it requires a lot of people signing off. And in the case of it not, you know, in the case like it would be right now where the acquiring team does not have cap space, the logistics get really difficult. So this isn't, you know, just just a little bit of a leverage play and move that player back and forth. I I just think they're going to be harder to do. So for Harkless, there is that outside chance that the Knicks could use could use those bird rights in a sign and trade. I just I don't expect it other than in some isolated cases. Well, it's not just a sign and trade. I mean, it could be re-signing for sure. the Knicks to keep him. Oh, uh, but sign but sign trades, I don't know. I, I feel kind of the opposite. We went for a while without them really happening at all. Now, I agree it's complicated. The more people involved, the more complicated it gets. And at minimum, there's there's going to be three here. Uh, 
However, there's the incentive. Uh, teams don't all just have the cap space to sign somebody. I'm guessing your listeners already know this uh, if you're the type to listen to this podcast. But just you know, a good reminder that signing trades were more common a, a long while ago, like in the time when LeBron was going to the Heat, because you could do a sign-and-trade as a player and get more money. Uh, that hasn't been the case for a little while. But now it's more mech- uh, an issue of if the team doesn't have cap space, that could be your path there. Right, and, and there could be some opportunities in in that capacity, and we'll, we'll have to see. And a, a lot of times, it depends on if a player and team more in the Jimmy Butler circumstance, where a player and team really want to make it happen, and that's the only mechanism. Then, then I think we'll still see it in those sorts of cases. But will a team decide? Oh yeah, Mo Harkless, he's our guy. We're going to get into these negotiations with this player when we don't even have the capacity to sign them to this contract ourselves. I remember. That was an unusual point in the negotiations when the Warriors were talking with Andre Guadalla years and years ago was the idea that they couldn't sign him to the contract they were negotiating with him. And they they were like, basically, trust us. And it ended up working out for all sides pretty damn well. But that is worth noting that it's pretty it's pretty unusual. Um, but, I, but I think I can envision a scenario happening many times next summer where a team says, OK, all we have is the middle level exception. We already have a player under contract. We don't want as much. What would we rather do? Sign one player for the mid-level exception and then keep the player we have? Or uh, sign one player for the mid-level exception and sign the other free agent uh, or get him in a sign-and-trade, give up the player we have, uh, and then you know maybe send out a draft pick. Like It seems like that type of situation for a, a mid-level type player like Mo Harkless will be there. I don't know how teams will handle it, but I think that will be there quite often this summer. There are so many directions I want to go, but let's keep going, moving on the four-team trade. This does keep put the Rockets into a, a really uncharted territory with – effectively a roster of all players six eight and below i am fascinated that this this that this fruition that is coming to fruition when there is not the golden state warriors you know a team where switching defenses can really like that's that in some ways is how the rocket system was devised and now switching against lebron james is an entirely different proposition and they can do different things you know they don't they could be more station to station defensively depending on how another team approaches it but it is a really big bet considering the window where Harden and Westbrook and, and some of their key players are at this current level. That window could be pretty narrow. The Rockets have shown they're really good when playing this way. That was even before adding Robert Covington, who, again, I think is just such a great fit for their style. And better than the options they had. I think that's another, yes. you know, if, great point. if this is what you're going to do, then you not having Clint Capella is a pretty significant positive. Because right. you can right. add somebody who's good, like Covington. Right. Great point. Um, I, I'm convinced they are good. I'm convinced while playing this way, they are good enough to win a championship. Now, there are also other teams good enough to win a championship. And so if Houston falls short, okay. But here's my big concern. How much uh, stress does that put on their players, particularly P.J. Tucker, but all of them who have to compensate for the lack of size? And this is what I come back to in their really good year with Chris Paul was, okay, they were going toe-to-toe with the Warriors. They were right there. At times, they might have even looked like the better team. But to do that, they had to play an aging Chris Paul a ton of minutes, and then he got hurt. And yes, injuries are somewhat coincidental, but they definitely uh, exposed him to injury more than other teams would. And that's because they didn't have the depth because they had to sacrifice it to get Chris Paul. You have to sacrifice something. And the Rockets keep taking this risk of if everybody's healthy and everybody's feeling good, they're going to be really good. I, I really do believe that. 
but there's more reason to doubt whether everybody will be healthy and, and you know not suffering from fatigue with this team uh, than most teams. There's another elephant in the room for why the Rockets have been shallower the last couple of years, and that Say is it. Be, that is because ownership is the biggest competitive advantage in the yes. NBA. And you, one of your priorities when you were laying that out, it was so matter of fact, but also as it turned out, incredibly accurate. That part of what Houston was doing was getting below the luxury tax, and. There are multiple examples from using the full mid-level to actually signing Nene to a contract where you could use him as matching salary instead of this funny money deal that the league rejected. And I am totally fine with owners of non-competitive teams being reluctant to spend, especially because in certain situations that can actually prevent general managers from help general managers be protected from themselves. You know, like the situation of we're not we're not that good this isn't the time to go all in however the houston rockets in 2018 2019 and 2020 is exactly when a team needs to do that and those sorts of moves on the margins you know not you know the mid-level exception the last couple years all that kind of stuff those those are the reasons why they have to play harden and paul and now westbrook so many minutes is that they don't have other guys that d'antoni trusts and i cracked up on Thursday, when there was that quote from Daryl Morey about, or from, I think it was from Morey about how, like, now they have 10 guys that D'Antoni trusts. And it's just like, no, no. I mean, like, first of all, like, D'Antoni runs a, runs a tight ship <laughs> anyway. But second, like, they just don't. Like, oh, oh, he's just going to fall in love with all of these guys that they just added. I am extremely skeptical of that. And the playoffs are, are a cauldron that clarifies a lot of things. Even players that sometimes coaches think they trust end up not d- delivering on that stage. Right. Uh, I, I was with you on that statement. And what really gets me even more is so I disagree a little bit. I, I definitely agree that this is the time if a owner is willing to spend, this is the time to do it. Like the Rockets would have benefited so much from spending more, but it would have been an expen- expensive. And if Tillman Fertitta doesn't want to, pay and doesn't want to go in the luxury tax that's his right he earned that by buying the team what gets me is that he goes on and on about how committed he is to winning he you know there was a report this week that the rockets were trying to get under the luxury tax and then the reporter said actually i'm hearing now that that they're completely willing to spend whatever it takes and you doesn't take a genius to tell what happened to think that the rockets pushed back on it and then they got under the tax a day or two later like just shut up about it and not only did they get under the tax they had an opportunity to take on more salary within the structure of the deal before the trade call happened and did absolutely nothing you know there was a there was a there was a window within that where they could have just taken on money nope right not not going to do it and at a certain point and for me i mean i wrote a takedown of of Tillman Fertitta's logic on this last year when they made all these claims about that they were scared of the repeater tax and I and I laid out I meticulously laid out their books and said this is why this is why that excuse doesn't make sense and it's like well now it kind of feels like a waste because the proof is in the pudding even more now where they have opportunities to make the team better and and sure you could say that the, those aren't opportunities to fundamentally transform it and you know they're that do that but the the small pieces matter too and, and i mean depth is such an incredibly important part and another part of this rocket story that i think is going to be huge for this year is seating matters for them too and right now other than probably the lakers but who knows maybe even them the top of the west is really bunched up so can Mike D'Antoni, Daryl Morey, however, however the decision-making is going to happen in, within that organization, 
can they afford to be as judicious with James Harden in the regular season as they should be to make sure that he's ready for the playoffs? Because if there if if he misses a couple of extra games or misses time within games, then they're a worse team. They're a worse team, and his numbers are worse. And there's also, you know, not just to slam him for going after his numbers, but there's something to setting a tone that we are competing every night, right? I think there is a positive value with that. Does that positive value outweigh the the wear and tear? That's a much more complicated discussion. But I, I do think we need to acknowledge that there's a there's definitely something positive with how much Houston competes. Absolutely. And I mean, a lot of times that can coincide with having a strong record, getting into a good seed. Remember, they had home court in one of the in that game seven against the Warriors. It didn't end up giving like producing a win, but they did have that home court. It very well could have made the difference. Let's move on to the Hawks part of that trade. And they made a bet of their own that Clint Capella was a better combination of player and contract than what they could have done with cap space in the summer of 2020. The the concept of that, I, I, I broadly support. I mean, Capella, reasonable contract. I like him as a player, assuming he can get this plantar fasciitis kicked by the start of next season. For the Hawks, I don't really care if it's if it happens this year, though, of course, it's better if it happens sooner. But remember, they didn't just take him on. This wasn't an Andre Drummond situation. They did give up the 15th or 16th pick in the 2020 draft for the opportunity. And so that ties in for you. Like, I'm guessing you agree with me that Capella player plus contract is better than the free agents that'll be available. But do you think he is almost lottery pick better than that? I lean toward, no, I I, I thought I, I was a big fan of Clint Capella's game. I'm the uh, least supportive of this trade from the Hawks. And, I, you know, I probably would have graded it like a, a CC plus, like, it's okay, like, I get it, but I, I don't think it's, like, some no-brainer move where they took advantage of, you know, the Rockets' position of needing to unload Capella to to do what they wanted to do, because you don't know what's going to be there in the summer, you don't know what's going to be there in the draft, uh, and you don't, maybe they have a better idea, but to me, I don't know what they're going to do with John Collins now, because I don't think that's a pairing that will work. You can give it time maybe i'm wrong sometimes pairings that i think don't work do and they'll have an opportunity to experiment but i just wonder if they're going to lower the value of capella and collins in the process of finding out we saw the hawks do well with a uh, i I call them two what two threat or double i I need to figure out the right term for guys that can pick and roll like like guys that can pick and pop and guys that can roll to the basket that works with Collins because then you can get, kind of get some of the spacing. Collins is developing his shot, but it's not all the way there. And that worked pretty well with Deadman last year. Incidentally, they now have Deadman again through another trade that we're probably not going to spend as much time on. Capella is more limited. You know, that jump shot has never really come around. He is better as a defender, and Deadman is relying a lot on a couple of better defensive years that might have been, that might end up looking more like outliers as his career moves on. But Capella's more limited, and and also think of the ripple effects that this has for the rest of Portland's team. So Travis Schlenk over the summer made a far bigger bet than this Capella bet on DeAndre Hunter. He moved up in the draft aggressively, not only gave up picks, but also gave up a portion of their cap space last year in order to get Hunter. And while he can still fit within this paradigm, the shooting becomes more important and it changes the structure. You know, now you don't really need him as a 3-4 defender because 
with Capella and Collins, you're not going to switch. Like, you can't really run that sort of rotation. You can with one of the two, maybe. But depending on how Lloyd Pierce runs the rotation, so they did that. They also drafted Cam Reddish in, in the lottery at number 10. And now, while it's entirely possible that one of Collins or Capella is gone in the next couple of years, they're, the, it feels like the entire kind of, like, geometry and structure of their team changed, but it didn't change everything on the roster. It just kind of shifted everybody around. Uh, yeah, so with Atlanta, I think you said Portland. But for Atlanta, sorry, yeah, yeah I, I agree. I, I mean, broadly speaking, I like the Hawks' vision. I like what they're trying to do. I like how they're trying to build. It's these individual moves. You mentioned a couple of the draft picks, especially trading up for DeAndre Hunter, now adding Capella. Like, I'm just not exactly sure on the specific moves. Right, and the part that I, I do like about Capella, and I think this is another reason why giving up the asset isn't as big a deal, is that let's say James Wiseman or 2021 Center X ends up being the best prospect available for the Hawks, they could move Capella. I don't, I, you know, maybe you get a smaller return, but it's not. I, I don't think that's as big a deal because he's on a tradable contract. So it's not the same type of bet as. Andre Drummond or some of the other bigs that are around where it's like, well, if this doesn't work, we're just kind of stuck. And so I I think from the Hawks' perspective, the idea that they can cut bait really does hold some value. The value around the league of centers has been shrinking far faster than center salaries. And so right now you might say, yeah, they could trade Capella. When it comes to it, his 15 or so million a year, I don't know how that's viewed around the league. I think there's a little more risk with that than than you do. You you might be right, but for me, if you you know a top twenty, maybe a top fifteen center, they hold their value a little bit more. Though the threshold, I mean, th- for me, this catalyzed with a when Nate and I did a position rankings for Dunked on a couple of years ago, that it was somewhere around ten or twelve, where we're like, oh, you definitely play these guys in the playoffs, and that line might even be narrower now. You know, the the best, absolutely, you know, the the Joel Embiid's of the world aren't going to get played off the floor. But once you get outside of that top group, it gets a lot harder. And Capella's not in that top group. Right. And and center tends to be a position where guys peak a little bit younger than people give them credit for. I'm not saying Capella's going to fall off in a, in a major way all of a sudden. I'm not predicting that. But there is the possibility of him declining a little bit uh, before the Hawks are ready to trade him. And that's got to be baked into. The other part of this trade that I think is is notable, I mean, in, in the context of their, uh, their also their larger rebuild, is Minnesota did something that I was hoping somebody would. Incidentally, I did a, a small portion of this in, in the mock deadline, which is some team without a lot of cap space to work with going after restricted free agents because, and, and we didn't know the extremes that this was going to go to due to what Memphis did and Atlanta, you know, get, they cut their, they cut their cap space pretty significantly. That there just isn't as much money out there for the Malik Beasley's, Juancho Hernan Gomez's, Chris Dunn's of the world. And so for me, accumulating those players, as long as you think they're worth it, acknowledging that there's a risk that they get overpaid and you lose them for nothing, or that they take the qualifying offer or something like that. I, I like that Gerson Rosas made that made that decision because there could be it could really help them. It could, and I I like that in particular in Minnesota because both of those guys should get a nice big role the rest of the season uh, where the Timberwolves can evaluate them. I I suppose that could backfire if they play too well 
And now all of a sudden the price and restricted free agency is way higher. Uh, but I do think for the Timberwolves, it's it's worth seeing what they can do. The Timberwolves are obviously not as deep as the Nuggets. And I like both of those players. I think they've shown nice things, but they haven't gotten the minutes in Denver uh, that they would get on an average team. And from Denver's perspective, I, I understand it. But what makes me uncomfortable, again, going back to ownership, is that I like flexibility. I like optionality. And there's a possibility that Gary Harris just isn't the guy we all kind of thought he was going to progress into. The jump shot has been shaky for a couple years now, and he still provides value in other respects. But you have that, and then the uncertainty at the forward spots for them. We know Millsap's hitting free agency, assuming there isn't some sort of extension, which I would doubt. Jeremy Grant has a player option. I expect for him to decline. So then he's in a restricted free agent. And we we don't know exactly what Michael Porter Jr.'s role is on the next great Nuggets team, which could be as soon as this year or next year. So I like having Wancho, having Malik Beasley, just in case. And just in case value players do carry risk. And remember, they did get a first-round pick in this deal, and that first-round pick could end up helping them. But I... Given how good the Nuggets are and given where they want to go, I would have retained that flexibility that Malik Beasley represents and that those guys do instead of just kind of cutting bait for a a draft pick that it's going to be hard to actualize on the timeline, even though the Nuggets are so young because they don't have a lot of filler salary. and And I just maybe it's that I lack the vision, but I just don't really know. Unless that player just blows up and they get something way better for it than I expect, I don't know how that turns into a real difference maker in the next, let's say, three years. Well, I will say the Nuggets did add two just-in-case players in Noah Vonley and then ultimately Jordan McRae. And Vonley's one who has a more clear role right now with Mason Plumley sidelined, where uh, Hernan Gomez, it was going to take maybe even multiple, but injuries that haven't happened yet where you would need him. Uh, So a little bit of a reorganization there. And with the draft pick, if they're looking to move it before the draft, uh, if that's the time they feel is optimal to go in to upgrade their roster, well, that's probably more valuable uh, because then you don't have to work out if there's a sign-in trade with Malik Beasley, if there's a sign-in trade with Hernan Gomez. Maybe they're even going, in theory, in the other timeline to the team that has the star the Nuggets are trying to get. it takes away a lot of complications because if you trade that draft pick before the draft, you're not relying on the team you're trading it to and yourself having a player that team likes. That's, that's what's so great about draft picks is that you trade them to a team and that team can pick the player they like. It doesn't have to be a match with your own roster. That's a really good point. And again, I, I can see why this makes sense for the Nuggets. It's just not something that I would have done because my philosophy is a little bit different. But, but there is a rational approach. It's also not your money. It's also not my money. That is a, that is an excellent point. I, I love spending other people's money also. Especially when they're billionaires. It, yes. it, it does It does feel nice. Plenty more to talk about with Dan Feldman on this eventful trade deadline. But first message from Bet Online. Even though football has officially come to a close, the action in basketball, hockey, UFC, and more continues to heat up. So you can visit our good friends and exclusive partner of Podcast One, Bet Online, to take care advantage of the best bonuses in the business. You can sign up for a free account and use the Podcast One promo code for a 50% sign-up bonus. In the NBA in particular, this is a really fascinating time. Lots of faces in new places, so if you think you have a good insight on 
how those are going to fare. It is a very hard time to set lines, which means it could be a good time to take advantage of those lines. And also, if you're going to be watching a game anyway, you want to see how D'Angelo Russell was faring on the Wolves or Robert Covington on the Rockets. He had that exciting game against the Lakers last night. Anything there, you can make it more interesting at Bet Online. Also, plenty with college basketball, and then UFC 247 is coming up on Saturday. But if you go to Bet Online, and you should, use the podcast one promo code because that not only gives you a 50% sign up bonus, but it also tells them that you came from us. So check out bet online, your online sportsbook experts. Let's move on to a trade that it, I, I like the way that Seth described this, which is that there's more heat and light on it than there might be in terms of overall impact, partially because both the players involved have such wattage despite not actually having provided as much value. And that is the Warriors Wolves trade where Minnesota finally helicopter flights and spurn, spurned hearts and all of that <laughs> later, they finally got their guy in Carl Anthony Towns, good friend D'Angelo Russell. You excited for the Andrew Wiggins era? I don't think excited is a word I would use for it. For, <laughs> for, but, but, so, I, I, it's so weird to talk about this trade, especially for me. Like, it, I try to be very unselfish when I try to analyze trades, and part of the reason why I got was angry when this happened was because I do think that it has meaningfully weakened my enjoyment of watching the team that I'm closest to, you know, to going to games in person for the next couple of years, like Wiggins, unless like, even if he's, let's say the best case scenario that he's a better Harrison Barnes, like, let's say that, you know, that he can defend and can, can mesh with players who are above him in the, in the pecking order. Okay. That's just not as interesting. And the, the, that's the best case scenario. The worst case scenarios are all heck of a lot worse. So from the Warriors perspective, I, I think what this gets into, and some of it is that there aren't as many just terrible contracts because teams were a little bit more judicious. But I mean, a little, little less than a year ago, I picked Wiggins as having the single worst contract in the NBA. And that was while John Wall was already hurt. We already knew that. And he's on that designated veteran extension. I haven't gone through the exercise right now, but I, I, while Wiggins is better than he was last year, I don't think he's significantly so. That contract is still awful. To me, that's the bigger part of this, is that as much as I decried the Warriors giving up Iguodala at a first and getting hard cap to get D'Angelo Russell instead of nothing, D'Angelo Russell is a significantly better basketball player to me than Andrew Wiggins. Right. I think the way to start on the trade assessing it is, would you have taken that first-round pick from Minnesota, just in a vacuum in terms of value, for taking on Wiggins' contract alone. No. That- I think yes, but I think it's close. But it obviously wasn't just that. You're also giving up D'Angelo Russell, uh, and you're giving up these first round, recent first-round picks. Who, uh, Jacob Evans and Mari Spellman, I don't think have done a, a ton or anything, but it does add to the cost a little bit. Usually there's a shine still on players picked that recently in, in the first round that they do still have positive trade value usually. I don't think there's any shine left on, on Jacob Evans, at least not not in the short term. Maybe that's being too close to it, but he he hasn't looked good basically since he put on a Warriors uniform. And and then Spellman I Spellman I I think had, you know, that he, he could he brought some intrigue as a big man who can space the floor and, and showed some some little defensive potential, you know. More more basically the idea that maybe he could be like a little bit below average to average rather than a superstar or any like defensively or anything like that. But if you can space the floor and be okay defensively, there's a place for there's a place for you in the NBA as long as you're not gonna make that much money. And so Spellman <laughs> could end up in, in that capacity. And 
There, there are a lot of different kind of components of this. I think one of the most interesting is the idea that in some ways the Warriors' biggest bet here was against the Minnesota Timberwolves next year, and that the pick they got back, you know, it's some of the lightest protection that we've seen in modern years on a pick for a team that is not a playoff team. You know, like you, sometimes you could see unprotected or lightly protected for the Clippers or for the Rockets, but this is the Minnesota Timberwolves a season out. And remember that they traded their second best player before they got Russell in a deal where the most important thing coming back to them was a first round pick. So it is a it is a a pretty interesting gamble by the Warriors to say the guy that we sacrificed in, in many ways to acquire eight months ago is not going to be enough to raise your to raise your team to a playoff to a playoff team. And I, they might be right though. Right. Uh, to, to me, the lasting takeaway is I don't like this trade for the Warriors. I can see how it could work. I could see that maybe they'll end up right and I'm wrong. And I think what I am certain of, though, is either this trade or the, everything that you talked about that was set into motion by acquiring D'Angelo Russell, at least one of those two was wrong. It can't. It really can't be both. You can't say, yep, it was worth it because of this trade. Now, you could say, well, it wasn't worth it, but at least they, they got out off of this experiment before it got even worse. This was the best offer and the right time to move on. I suppose we'll look back and say that's possible. It's just it can't be both, and I think that takes – some of the shine off of the Warriors front office that has this great reputation that for so long had seemingly done everything right, that one or the other, at least, of of this set of moves was wrong. Right. And I it's it's hard because I, I don't want to kind of poach my own content that's coming out, but I have this operating I have a couple operating theories that are all gonna to fit together in either a piece or a series of them. But one of them is this really kind of counterintuitive logic that I think you're one of the people who can appreciate and maybe help me articulate, which is this. I think the Warriors front office actually benefited from Steph Curry getting injured. And the reason why is because that made it acceptable for them, understandable for them to be as bad as they are. And I think the Warriors, basically, they gave up so much to get D'Angelo Russell and they, you know, all, all the other limitations, the hard cap and everything else. And they expected to be good, like to be, to be, you know, maybe not like as, as you know, without Clay and without KD as good as they were, but th- in, the that's, playoffs. That, in, in the playoffs and, and maybe potentially frisky. And, and, you know, I, I was, I, I said like, those are, there's a possibility that I can make it. They're probably closer to the six or the eight than anything above that. But even, even then, like, but partially because Steph Curry is one hell of a player, but we got a, we We only got a small sample before Curry got hurt, but that sample was really, really terrible. And and so what happened was instead of getting the full lens on, wow, this is not that good a team f- compared to, you know, and, and maybe given that the, the bottom of the West was softer than we thought, partially due to the Warriors not being in it, that it could have gotten there. But instead, it just became such a train wreck. And the, the analogy that I've been working with right now is it's like, you can't tell that you oversalted your food when it's burned to crisp. And so that way, the smaller mistakes <laughs> don't matter when there's something else that supersedes all of it. Okay. I agree with that. I agree with all of that. I wouldn't term it, though, as like something good for the front office because there's For their still, reputation. Not, for not reputation, not, yes. Not, not for yes. the franchise. Exactly what I was going to say because you're going to have to go back to – relying uh, uh, on some of those players especially Steph and Draymond uh you know after Clay gets healthy whatever you have with Wiggins like everything else 
the players who were underwhelming and, and couldn't rally this team to be anywhere near good before Curry got hurt, you're going right back to them, and that's still your problem. That's a great point. Something Nate and I discussed yesterday on Dunked On, I, I'm interested in your opinion on it, is let's let's ignore the growing pains and adjustments that are going to happen for the rest of the season, because I think to an extent the Wolves are going to do that too. Given what we expect to happen with their summer, you know, reasonable use of the mid-level exception, trades and all that as as appropriate, they have a first-round pick. How good do you think the Minnesota Timberwolves are? Like, what kind of a range? Let's focus on it in terms of wins. Would you would you think is a reasonable range for them, knowing what we know right now? Mm. Uh, you can convert it to wins, but when I saw this trade, I was thinking like, okay, that's going to be what about the twelfth pick? Yeah, that's about that's about the same range I was thinking. For me, it was more like. High 30s, high 30s, low 40s, but then the challenge is that gravity might drag them a little bit down just because injuries and all that type of stuff. But why, it won't drag them down they, all the way because they're not going to tank. Exactly, exactly. You know, that, that's but just, just the, that just the idea that it's the idea that it's easier to underperform expectations than overperform them because players get hurt. There are more players that get hurt than there are players who bust into a new level of stardom. Sure. No, that that is true. Uh, to me, yeah. About the twelfth pick, yeah, and 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 so that makes well, it in what's supposed to be a good draft. I, yeah, I, I don't know how much stock I put into that ever, even on draft day, let alone this far out. And it also there are different kinds of good and bad drafts. Yeah. I I always separated it as stars, starters, and rotation players. And so yeah. sometimes a a a draft is weak on stars, but then has a lot of rotation players. So then having the 20th pick might actually not be as terrible. But then other times it's very top-heavy and everyone else isn't that good. And so, yeah, it, it can be really hard. And then the other element of it for various different drafts, you brought up OG Ananobi, is you can have these drafts like 20... That was 2017, I believe, where there were a lot of players that were taken higher than those than, than OG and Jared Allen that have basically washed out. But then they, teams were able to get those two and Derek White and Josh Hart and, well, we'll see what happens with Ojale. Jonah Bolden was just cut today, mm-hmm. so we have that. And Thomas Bryant got waived and then picked up, and then Dylan Brooks just got an extension. So even in – whether it's a strong draft or a weak draft or a disappointing one, there there are still values. It's just whether you have the – there there are kind of two parts. One is the is, – is that player falling – random chance or is it that the other team identified something well like you have have those sort of elements and then also that a class is very rarely singularly strong or singularly weak though it can happen right i mean if we're going down this rabbit hole real quick i I haven't done enough research to say this for certain but my early impressions on this year's draft is it's not as weak as people are saying it's just far more unpredictable because there are so many players coming from uh maybe american-born playing overseas or or international all along or you know uh didn't finish their freshman year of college or just a lot of things going on with a lot of players where it makes it hard to predict but i think the talent level is going to ultimately be there as as of a typical draft Uh, it's just not going to be sorted as well this year that's interesting. I haven't done enough film. I can't. I can't speak to it myself. And so the Wiggins part of this, from the Warriors' perspective, and, and the, this the duality of of this from the Wolves and the Warriors is well. Okay, how is the value of this going to change over the course of time? And I brought this up with Capella. You, we disagreed a little bit on if if in this if that player isn't the answer, what can you do to move on? And this is why I'm. I, I think this move could end up being more harmful for the Warriors than some think. Is that they don't have a big window here. It's, you know, Curry, Clay, Draymond, those guys are all aging. Also now, they're not getting Andre Iguodala. 
because Andre Iguodala signed an extension with the Heat for significantly more than the Warriors could have offered. And I, I think that what this leads to is, yes, they have the Iguodala trade exception, and theoretically they could package that with one of these picks to get something intriguing, depending on if that team is willing to trade that player. But now, if they're trying to get a... Uh, whether it's a star or an expensive player, either way, now I think it's a much harder sell to say, okay, you're getting, you're also getting Andrew Wiggins. Like that's how we're making this deal happen <laughs> is Andrew Wiggins than D'Angelo Russell. Part of that is the nature of their positions. Even though wings are more scarce, Russell is a better player. And even if Russell isn't your favorite player, he has, like we already saw multiple teams were willing to give him a max contract. And then multiple teams were interested in him already on that max contract. Whereas Andrew well, Wiggins... Well, well, did he have multiple max offers? Well, he had I know Wolves, he had multiple he, very high offers. He had I, the Wolves and the Warriors. I don't think he got a max offer from the Wolves. If, if I'm not mistaken, I, I think because of what they could do, it was very high, but a little less. That that could be possible. You you might be right. Um, but And it looks like now, though, that the Knicks, we don't know exactly what the Knicks were offering, but let, let's say, like, I, I've used the term the Nene test for years now, which is basically, like, is would, you, would a, a team, if they had enough cap space, take on that player? And it changes based on who your potential trade partner is. I think, even though I think less of Russell than most, that he probably passes it for at least a few teams in the league on this contract. Wiggins does not. Agreed. So that makes it that makes it harder to to trade. It makes it harder to make some of those big deals because now can can you come to a proper proper place with Wiggins? Can you use that as a selling point? And we don't know who that player is, who that could be. You know, they're they're I'm sure they're pie in the sky ideas for for many disgruntled or potentially disgruntled stars. And maybe star is probably maybe the wrong word for what the Warriors or what could end up getting for Wiggins. But I just think it's so much harder to make that move with him than it would be for Russell. I I agree a hundred percent. And that it leaves the Warriors in a tough spot. Let's move from one all-star in D'Angelo Russell to another all-star in Andre Drummond. No <laughs> trade reflected the difference between the modern NBA and its, predece- its predecessor eras more than Andre Drummond, two-time all-star, still in his mid-20s. He's, 20, he's 26, 27, right? Yeah, 20, yeah 26. It getting traded in what is basically a challenge deal. I mean, so the, the Cavs sent two expiring contracts who are not going to do anything for the Pistons and a second round pick that is the lesser of their own and the Golden State Warriors. We can expect that that's not going to be fantastic. It's also a second round pick to, to the Pistons for Drummond. And I'll, I'll give you the framing and see, and you can obviously put it on your own if you want, you know, the Pistons so well is to what made this trade so interesting to me is the idea that both teams are in relatively similar situations relative to the 2020-21 cap. And so the Pistons have functionally decided, we'd rather have cap space than Andre Drummond, and the Cavs said, we'd rather have Andre Drummond than cap space. Well, the big difference in situations is Blake Griffin more recently ha- has been a player who can get you to the playoffs as a, as a top player than Kevin Love. Uh, however, the Pistons have come out and said, like, we're rebuilding. That's what this trade was. And the Cavs have said, yeah, we're rebuilding too. We see Andre Drummond as a long-term piece. So in that sense, it is a challenge trade. I don't know where the Pistons are going to go from here. They do have the cap flexibility, like you said now, uh, to retool around Blake Griffin, Derrick Rose, maybe get some pieces who 
maybe aren't as good as Andre Drummond, but fit better and be a decent team that has another shot to compete for the playoffs as if that's some grand worthy goal. It, based on what they're saying, they're entering an era of rebuilding. I don't know what that means for Blake Griffin, though. We're not going to get the full scope of how how aggressive a teardown this is for a little while because how the Pistons approach using using this flexibility that they have now created is going to take time. And, and sometimes it might be market dependent. It might be that depending on who says yes, who says no, what what is available for their draft pick that that shifts it and what is what teams offer for Derrick Rose. So my instinct is that they're going to go the more aggressive teardown route, but I'm not. I'm not as confident in that. I think as some other people are, just because you ne- you never know with a front office, and those those things can be really painful, not only for general managers who or coaches, but also for ownership groups. Oh, owner's the big variable here. Uh, Tom Gores had been very resistant to a full teardown, and he sounds like he's warming up to it. But we'll see how much. I also think you know full teardown. Uh, Sam Hinkie kind of changed the standard of what a full teardown is in a lot of places. And I think Detroit, even if they go that route, will be one of them. There's more of a value in having some veterans around where Sam Hinkie was like, no, every roster spot is going to be about maximizing value for when this team's actually good. That's the goal with every single roster spot. Uh, you know, and if it means just saving money, we'll do that. I, I don't think it'll be that level of full teardown. Right. I, I agree with you there. And and the other part of this brought the pain of rebuilding is that let's say the Pistons are going into that process. They're in a much earlier stage than the, than, than the Cavs are. Some of that might be because the Cavs have started it. It's more about timing rather than about team quality. And so the Cavs have already been through a couple of really rough years since LeBron left. And they, you know, I th- rolling the dice on whether Drummond can fundamentally change one of the key characteristics of the last couple of years, which is their truly, truly awful defense. And considering they were able to do it on a relatively low cost basis for right now, and that gets into another question I want to talk about this, you know, as as a gamble just to see, does this do, does this change things or is is there something more structurally wrong? I can kind of see that as as a worthwhile thing, especially when, as of right now, the, the longest that they can have Drummond under contract on this deal is 2021. They could give him an extension. Right, and and that's where this could potentially get worse, is, is that if... I mean, we've already seen Kobe Altman give significant money to frontcourt players that didn't that didn't deserve it. I mean, Love being the player who was willing to stay, Larry Nance, who I always thought was a man without a country, on both ends of the floor, actually... Uh, those those extensions look worse now than they did then, and they looked bad to me then. And sure, we couldn't have seen all of Kevin Love's injury stuff coming, but it, it's not a huge surprise that he's been dealing with some issues. And that leads to the question I, I posited this in the uh, the collaborative write up that I, that I was a part of for the Athletic, which is: Should Cleveland right now? I, should they be hoping that Drummond picks up this player option just because then at least? At least it kind of clarifies their their timing of, of a, a bunch of different things, and it also mitigates. Like basically, this should Cavs fans probably more than Cavs front office, but you can argue it from both perspectives. Yeah, it's a tough question because you're going to see the next half of the season how he fits, what his attitude is, how his skills mesh with everybody else, all of it. And so the answer is going to be the one you don't want. 
if everything goes poorly, I guess it could go poorly. And Andre Drummond says, screw the money. I just want to be somewhere else. Uh, that's not great either, right? You don't want a player who everything goes so poorly. He just wants to leave. If he's playing really well and clicking, and everything's going great. He's more likely to opt out. Uh, if it's somewhere in between, like it's probably going to just be the answer you don't want. Right. That's the the assumption is always that a player will make the player option decision correctly and correctly for the player is is bad for the team. That's the whole idea. And it's the same for team options from a player's perspective. And that's why they that's why they're so complicated and mutual options would be fascinating in basketball. But I understand why they don't happen for a bunch of different reasons. And so it gets into a, a situation for the Cavs where they could they could be a little bit stuck. Now, they're not going to be as screwed as, let's say, the Sixers with Tobias Harris, where they gave up all this stuff to get him. He was a part of their playoff run, and then they won him, and he had so much leverage on them that that's how Tobias Harris got that contract. But, it, it, you know, I could easily see them, especially if the Cavs play better than they have so far, I could see that it's like, hey, he's a key part of this, opts out, and gets... This is, to me, the Harrison Barnes nightmare is probably a good example here, where, yeah, it's less money than he than he would have made for that season on the option, but you commit for three or four seasons. And, as you said, centers peak early and don't always age particularly well. Right. Even if they're amazing rebounders like Drummond is, that can be something that wears out. uh, Maybe even especially if they're amazing (laughs) rebounders. True. Like, I I think Dennis Rodman in particular has distorted, and he wasn't a big center, has distorted people's minds because he was an excellent rebounder, like, deep in his career. It was the other stuff that went first. Sometimes we get too caught up on the exceptions uh, rather than the players who make up the rule. We're getting we're getting a little bit tighter on time. There there were other moves. Oh, the other one we have to talk about is the Memphis Miami one. Thank you. Yeah. I've been waiting to talk about Memphis this whole time. I got takes. The floor is yours, my friend. What the hell are the Grizzlies doing? To and, me, and, this and, was and by how, far how, the worst. And how crazy is that compared to the beauty of their offseason? Right, right. Like, and that's maybe what's somewhat somewhat jarring of with it is the only exposure we had to their new front office was this offseason. We all liked their moves. Like. Basically, every one of them, everything seemed to be really good. They seemed to know what they were doing. And so there's no counter, right? The longer an executive is in place, the more we're like, yeah, he has hits, he has misses. Both happen. It was all good until this just disastrous trade. And I like Justice Winslow. I think he could be a good fit there. The cost of getting him, my goodness. So similar question I had before, in a vacuum to you, if, you know, without knowing the exact team situation – if you had to take on, let's just say, Gorgie D- Jang's contract, because uh, they did flip James Johnson, but similar, I think, uh, Jang's contract, Deion Waiter's contract, to get Justice Winslow, just that, would you do it? No. Agreed. And they gave up Jay Crowder. And they gave up Andre Iguodala. Like, what are you doing? And Jay Crowder, if if they couldn't get any sort of asset for him, then that might be on the rest of the league, but they very well could have. And, and Iguodala... Again, like so, moving those instead of get, getting like assets back, they 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 somehow it's it's just like so, like for whatever reason, twenty twenty cap space is like molten lava, and <laughs> it's it's not that oh you know you might not maximize the value. It's let's get out of it as as best we can because it's gonna it's gonna be poison. Like we can't we can't drink we can't drink too much poison. And the craziest thing about that is. A team that proved that even if you're not a desirable free agent destination, you could still generate value, even though the 2020 offseason will not be one iota as extreme as 2019 was, is the Memphis Grizzlies. Like, the Grizzlies created value getting a first-round pick, a player who they were eventually able to move, in Andre Iguodala, 
for just having space and being willing to talk to teams. The Knicks lost out on that. The Clippers proved this with the Moharkless deal. And remember that the they got a first-round pick for leveraging cap space for Moharkless. Then they turned around and were able to use that pick as a part of the Paul George trade. And those, I thought, would be proof of concept that even if you don't like the free agent class, even if the right players aren't interested in, in what you have to offer, there are still other ways to generate value. And it, I, I am happy that I think they got uh, they signed Dylan Brooks. First of all, I'm happy for both sides there. Even though I thought Dylan Brooks could have gotten more as a free agent, this is a massive amount of money. This is life-changing money for him. So great to line that up, get it ahead of time, even if I think he could and should have gotten more in the summer. But for them to basically, for the Clipper, for the Grizzlies, sorry, not the Clippers, to basically kick about $50 million in cap space to the curb for Justice Winslow and the solace of knowing that they have Dylan Brooks on a, on a contract they're happy with is bananas. And giving up Andre Iguodala and, and giving up Jake Crowder. Like the victory lap people are taking of, see, this is why they hung on to Andre Iguodala, like instead of just buying him out, you didn't get anything for him. Right. And they could have, they, you know, a concern that I would always have for, for general managers if I were, like, this is a way that I would think about it. First of all, I evaluate trades from each team's perspective separately. Mm-hmm. But if you are negotiating a trade and you just for a second imagine, okay, let's take these exact terms and let's throw it out into the world. If everybody thinks it's an awesome trade for the other team, either you're really confident in your evaluation or you could have gotten more. Because even if... So this is the whole this is the whole idea of, of like from a value proposition this this has come up a few times like the Cam Johnson draft pick for the Phoenix Suns. If you think a guy is the fifth best player in the draft and everybody else thinks they're twentieth, you shouldn't take them eighth. You should take them eighteenth. Like that's well, sort of an idea. I mean, they took him what eleventh instead of sixth. If you want to give them some credit on that, I, I guess I, I agree. I but that, agree but, that, but you get the concept. The concept sure, is absolutely. like if you, if if you think Justice Winslow is that great. You can still get him at a lower price, and then you don't have to have paid the higher price. Right. And so uh, as far as evaluating it from each team side, this is, to me, why we're starting with Memphis is because I hated this trade a lot more for Memphis than I liked it for Miami. But I obviously loved it for the Heat. Uh, for, I think this just, man, it sets them up on to be on such a great upward trend. So they're a surprising, fun, good team this year. Like, they're a great story. Everybody's, like, real pleased with where they are. And... Now they're going to have high 20 millions in cap space next summer. Uh, they're even better now with Jay Crowder and Andrea Gonzalez for the rest of this season. Uh, you get this cap space, you can go get somebody, one or two players on a big contract that's only one year guaranteed, team option, unguaranteed year, or maybe just a one year deal total. Uh, maybe somebody like Davis Bertans would want a huge contract. So now you're upgrading even further, and then you can go into the summer of. 2021 with max plus cap space uh, maybe you even sign somebody to a multi-year deal take away some of that plus but still leave the max you can go after Giannis you can go after Victor Oladipo that you know we'll see exactly who's on the market at that point but there are enough stars that you think the Heat can get involved in in some talks there and you know you want to throw out one more possibility this summer they should call up Anthony Davis and say are you sure you don't want to come here are you sure you're happy with the Lakers he's probably happy with the Lakers but it's at least worth making that pitch, and then you don't have to wait for 2021 to get the star. Right, and and you make the call. I don't think anything's going to come from it, but you do make the call. And so from yeah, from Miami's perspective, they got players who can help. They didn't take on much financial risk, and 
Yeah, Iguodala for $15 million isn't the greatest, but I think theoretically they could move that. I've put a pin in the idea that theoretically Iguodala fits into, on the very beginning of July, he fits into the Andre Iguodala trade exception that the Warriors created when they traded him. That is, <laughs> that is technically possible and would be, honestly, the single greatest power move in the history of the NBA. If Andre Iguodala basically engineered this to go back to the Warriors and make more money than the Warriors could have paid him— and it probably wouldn't be circumvention because it uh, because nobody could ever prove how ridiculous this is. So it's it's a possibility. I'm not. I, I wonder how closely the league would look into it. I think they would take some cell phones. But it's uh, in my experience, the Heat can get away with anything. That's also true. And th- that was something I, I wrote about a little bit. Is Pat Riley's superpower and and Andy Ellsberg deserves a lot of credit for this too. Their superpower is not being perfect and never making mistakes because they have and i mean the summer of 2017 was a lot of big mistakes it was i zach Lowe did a good job talking about this on friday of you know that they they read too much into the 30 and 11 and not enough into the 11 and 30 and brought these guys back but what riley has done going back to anthony carter and some of the moves that were made to get the heatles together is that he is able to get out of negative consequences so much cleaner than just about everybody else in the league and does so with more consistency. It's not just like one move. It has happened more often. They were able able to squeeze things together, and it's truly incredible. Uh, I... I don't. I agree. I guess I. I guess this well, is the I have, time for a for a ben, for a Beno Udra shout out. Yeah, the, it is. It is the time for a Beno Udra shout out. The other part of this for Memphis that would be giving me cold sweats in the night is when a team trades a player that it appears that they like, especially when injuries are involved. I would always be thinking, what do they know that I don't? And an example here, he's not as young as Justice Winslow, is the Spurs letting Jonathan Simmons go. And I, I you know, I was firmly like, oh, he's going to be a 3-and-D wing. Like, he had a couple of really nice defensive, I think it was at the end of the regular season and the, and the early playoffs one year. And the Spurs let him go. They didn't miss him at all. Ended up becoming a negative, a negative contract and bouncing around the league a little bit. And Justice Winslow is a better player. He has a track record. I mean, you could even go back to Danny Ainge, allegedly offering everything ever to I believe that was yeah that was to the to the Hornets for I was to, it was to multiple teams to multiple teams to get him and I mean theoretically if Ainge if Ainge still like Justice Winslow he could have just gotten him um though Miami gave him up in a pretty favorable trade to them so maybe not as much but that's the part of the other part of this for Memphis is this isn't even though this was a really favorable trade for Miami, I still am convinced that they really like Justice Winslow. And if he was right, they would have wanted to move him. And well, but, but maybe I, they would have for this trade. Maybe they for would've. this return. Right for this return. Mean, but that. Right. But, but wouldn't that still give you pause, just in case? Sure, but you brought up the Spurs. They also traded Kawhi Leonard uh, amid injury questions. Where you could make the same argument. Like sometimes, I mean, that one's a little different. But the Heat got a lot. I, I you know. Do I have concerns about Justice Winslow's health? Yes. Is it because the Heat traded him? Not really. That's fair. I, I just it, maybe it's just be the the part of me that is risk averse. That idea that that there are information asymmetries around the league, and and that's why you have to trust your own doctors and the physicals that you get and any intel that you can find out from whatever sources you can. Like that, that that's why it's really important. And maybe if I were in a front office. I would believe in my people for that. You know, the general manager runs the ship for a reason, and they are in charge of making sure the people they trust have those decision-making powers or have those evaluation powers. You have the decision-making power. And, yeah, that'll be that'll be worth watching as well. Absolutely. Um, I mean, if, if he's not healthy, this is even more of a disaster for Memphis. If he is healthy, I, 
this is how I feel about most trades, including everyone in season this year, is even the ones I don't like, I can see a path of how it would work for the team that I don't like it for, right? You can see a path where nothing was going to emerge productive for Memphis this summer. Uh, Justice Winslow is going to progress toward the high end of his potential, really reach his ceiling. Uh, Andrea Guadalla is is you know washed up he's older he's been sitting out uh he was going to if you didn't trade him he was going to make life really difficult like i i can envision it but it is such a narrow path of all those factors for this to work out for memphis the other thing i want to talk about briefly because i know this is something we dealt with in the mock deadline negotiating sometimes against each other or with each other in the case of the four-teamer is there were a series of teams and basically enough, I talked like I focused on Dallas and OKC because they had players on on high value contracts that they aren't playing at all. Courtney Lee and Andre Robertson. Another example of this is Darius Miller. I wrote a piece about the walking trade exception early this season. It seemed like that's what David Griffin was doing with that contract. And none of those teams made any sort of move to get a player now that could have been a lesser end player for multiple seasons with, uh, you know, basically just taking on their money because those teams don't have a lot of flexibility. It could have been something even better, but you have to give up assets. Like that was the, the rumor about the Mavs giving up Golden State's second this year, which they have the rights to. And it is impossible to fully evaluate whether or not those teams made mistakes because we don't know what players were truly made available. But it, it, it was deflating to me to see to see so few of those deals happen. It is so much safer in terms of perception not to make a trade because we don't we can't know what was available, right? We can't evaluate deals teams turned down or didn't that they could have negotiated if they were more aggressive about. We can't know what those are. We, those aren't released to the public. What is released are the trades that are made, and that's what we evaluate. So if you make a bad trade, you're going to get slammed for it. If you make no trade, it's not really easy uh, for us to criticize specifically. You could say, yeah, it seems like they should have been more proactive, but it's got to be with the caveat of, but I don't know what was out there. Uh, so it's a very safe thing per- for perception. In terms of team building – not making a trade offer, not accepting an offer is a decision just like accepting the trade would have been. And, and so it's, I don't know, some some of these executives are cowardly with it, right? It's to protect their own reputation, their own job, and it's not putting their team in the best position because that too often enters the decision making of, well, how will it be perceived if I do this? Nobody's going to know if I don't. This comes up a lot more in coaching than in general managing. You know, the the coach that that goes for the you know goes for a field goal instead of going for it on fourth down because they know going for it on fourth <laughs> and failing generates more criticism than than doing the safe thing. And, oh, football coaching. I, I was wondering, like, how does this come up in basketball coaching? But yes, in football coaching, yes. Well, it can in terms of like foul trouble. You know, that's that sort of like you know that the some I think some of the reasons some coaches are concerned about about that is oh, what if you leave the guy in and he fouls out? And well, but it's a well, but again, I think it's different in coaching because we see the decision even in football, right? You get coaches get criticism for not going for it on fourth downs, like yeah. just because the mainstream right. decision it's, it's is even one way. More, it's even more extreme. You're right. It's even more extreme because we can't we can't definitively say it. And even in some of the cases where there gets to be preliminary reporting, it's usually so nebulous and so after the fact. You know, I brought right. I brought up Justice Winslow. That is a, a really good example of it. And you know, even then, like that is it's not. It's not canon, though I think a lot of people expect that something like that happened. You, you know what an example is? So a lot of preliminary reporting, you know, I'm trying to figure out, well, does the math work on the trade and, and evaluate and think like, OK, well, what other information is going to come out? 
And with the Warriors, Andrew Wiggins trade, I kept thinking, okay, now send the follow-up tweet, Woj, about how uh, the Timberwolves are also conveying uh, that that Nets pick also. Because then it gets into the range of making sense. Right. And and then there are other times where I remember there was, I think it was the Serge Ibaka trade to Orlando, where at first you're stunned one way and then you're stunned the other way because the team gave up more than you anticipated. (laughs) Right. Right. I mean, I, there are, I'm sure there are more things that we could discuss, and if there's something that that comes to mind for you that you want to, that you want to get into, we can. But I, I think oh, well, just just along these lines, a specific team that I want to call out is the Bulls. Now, again, this is they do get some benefit of the doubt because this is through you know anonymously sourced reporting and vague. But there was a report that the sense teams got talking to the Bulls was that Zach Levine was untouchable, and maybe that was true. Maybe it was just that those teams weren't offering anywhere near fair value, and so those teams were were trying to make the Bulls look bad or came away with the wrong impression. But if it's true that Zach Levine is untouchable, I mean, come on. Like, there's probably a marketing component to this. He's the star of the Bulls. He was, They viewed him as an all-star candidate. He's not even an all-star. He's going to the three-point shootout. Like, your marketing arm can survive trading Zach Levine if there's an offer that's good for the franchise. And the Bulls probably were never going to find that offer if it's true that they were just kind of shutting down talks. Maybe that offer never would have come, but it would have been so irresponsible of of them not to seriously explore it. The number of absolute no-trade players in the NBA of like, you know, I wouldn't even, there is no conceivable offer is probably like three or four. And it might yeah. not even be that many. Uh, no, I, th- I think I mean, it when is. You consider, when you consider that the, the reigning MVP, the reigning and likely to be again reigning MVP could end up being a free agent. A, a, that's true. You know, like, I, I mean, depending on what conversation, and that's the other really important ramification of these shorter contracts now. And, you know, all, all that stuff tying in players being so aggressive. And I mean that in a good way with their agency and being able to, to to get into that is maybe those lines are even boring a little bit too. And and again, there are, there are players who become that way because of their their sentimentality, their connection with the team or something else like that. But I'm talking like the pure, you're the best players in the league. I can't even really think of a way that this would happen. That That's going to be a really small list. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I do think one thing that does come up more often is, and is fair is teams talk about players or with other executives and they learn a player they have they just value the him more than everybody else oh yeah maybe that's right maybe it's wrong and so it's, it's sometimes it's okay to be like look it we're not going to trade this guy and sometimes it can get spun to oh they're refusing to trade him when the reality is they've just come to an acceptance and an understanding they're not going to get an offer where they do it that's okay it is as long as they're not being completely unreasonable about it you know like that there are there are times that players are functionally off the board because teams want too much and they probably shouldn't have been. I mean, I I could think of the example, like for me, the Sixers holding so firm on Nerland's Noel for way too long when it was pretty, it was pretty clear that he was not a part of their future and they just were not willing to cut bait until they got a fake first. Right. That's a good counter example, but, but the NBA does work toward an equilibrium where, where the, the executives get the players they like it works toward that it's obviously imperfect but if you imagine you know this is not my point is we shouldn't just criticize the executives for being too stubborn because if you randomly assigned a team to uh each executive they wouldn't be as stubborn with those players because they weren't the players they already picked there'd be a ton of movement it just works toward the stagnancy naturally and understandably I agree with your proposal that we should just randomize all of the general managers every single year just to make our (laughs) more fun 
Oh, that'd be great. Uh, who and, and then the executive of the year award would actually make sense because it, it's an award for one year, but it's not a job for one year. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Always a pleasure, my friend. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Dan Feldman for taking the time to come on. You can read his excellent work at NBC's Pro Basketball Talk, and you can follow him on Twitter at Dan Feldman NBA, D-A-N-F-E-L-D-M-A-N-N-B-A. It's kind of nice. This is my last piece of work after the deadline. There is so much content out there, not only for me, but from so many other wonderful people. Nate and I did over two hours on the deadline. We also did a live show yesterday. Then... Sam Vecini, Seth Partnow, and I did, I think it ended up being five or six collaborative pieces for The Athletic, plus all the great work by John Hollinger, Zach Harper, local beat writers, and then at every other outlet. Zach Lowe's write-up today, I, I read and I, I really did enjoy, and there are so many more, Haberstrow and others, that I haven't read yet. So you got lots of content for a little while, which is good because we're getting closer to the All-Star break where we won't have as much regular season basketball. If you want to support this show, there are so many different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode. That is extremely important, especially for a show like this where you cannot get into a rhythm because... It comes out on different days. That just depends on my availability, guest availability. It will always be once a week, but I don't know when in the week it is going to be, so you can't know when in the week it is going to be. can also spread word, word of mouth, if you think a single episode or the overall series is good, however you see fit. Really do appreciate that. Then leaving a rating, leaving a review on the podcast, whatever you're choosing, it's great if it's Apple Podcasts, but really wherever. And if you want to be super awesome, if you use something else, you can leave a review both places. You can do that. But the single most important thing to do for this show and any other that has them is to check out our sponsor for this episode that is bet online use that podcast one promo code for a 50 percent sign up bonus real gm radio will be back next week i do not know when and with whom but it will be back in, in some way shape or form i have a couple ideas for the next few weeks is just squaring up who is available at given times i am going to take about a week as off as I can do for All-Star. I'm not going. Um, I try to clear my head and try to do something fun, and hopefully that will be the case again this year. But if you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com is the way to convey it. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I don't always respond, but I do when I can. My promise is to read it because I don't want to waste your time, and, and I promise you that I don't. As stated before, podcast dunked on, written work at The Athletic, and hopefully all of that content can tide you over. Dunked on, we're going to be, we, we still have more to do, but we're going to be taking a little bit of time off as well. So that'll be, that'll be really nice. But there will be a Real GM Radio next week and the following week. I just don't know exactly when. But one more exciting announcement before I leave. It is official that Real Jam Radio is available on Spotify. It is free. The goal is to make this show super easy for you and your friends to listen to. And joining Spotify gives us even more places for people to find the show. And we can build the community even further. Spotify is working to help listeners discover the shows they love. And now this podcast is one of them. If you're already listening to music on Spotify, now you can listen to Real Jam Radio in the same place. And if you're not on Spotify yet, all you have to do is download the free app, no credit card necessary, and simply search for Real Jam Radio to start listening for free. That's all for now, so thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.